Keep your Bibles open to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. And you should have received a, a sheet like this when you came in. If not, you can pick one up on the way out. I think it will be helpful for you this morning. Imagine you are a doctor and you were told you have a, a patient in the examination room. And so you open the door and you go into the room and you see a man laying there on a, on a bed and his eyes are closed, he's not moving at all, and you go up to him and very quickly you check his pulse and realize his heart has stopped. And so what do you do? You call a code blue, you alert other nurses and doctors, and, and soon the room is bustling with people trying to save this man's life. And as, as the doctors and nurses are all buzzing around, you notice this man has a cheeseburger in his hand. He's overweight, needs to lose some weight. You realize this man has some problems, probably health-wise, that he should have taken care of before he came into this situation. Maybe he has a couple cuts and bruises, maybe even a wound on his side that needs to be sewn up and put a bandage over. But, but if you're in a hospital situation like that, like of first importance is saving this guy's life, right? It's not reprimanding him for having a cheeseburger in his hand or telling him to lose weight, or even taking care of his wound. It's, it's to save his life. And so, so then his life is saved. And you dealt with what, the matter of first importance. That was this life-threatening situation. But then later on that week, you meet with him for a follow-up visit. Maybe he's still in the hospital, and you go into the hospital room, and you talk to him. And that's probably the time when you're going to address some of the health issues, some of the the health concerns he has. Maybe you're going to talk about maybe eating at McDonald's. Maybe you shouldn't do that so much. Maybe you should go on a diet. Maybe there should be some, some exercises that you should do, or here's some medication as well. Maybe you're going to take, you might, you might check his wound. And by that time, hopefully they've put a bandage on it. You might, you might change it. And, and the point is you're taking care of something that is a secondary issue. It's a issue you could say of second importance. And that is taking care of some of the, the life really sustaining health issues that he needs to address. And then, and then last of all, maybe a couple months later, this man comes back and you have a follow-up appointment and you notice this guy has, has lost some weight. He's, he's eating healthier. He has good blood pressure. He's taking his medication. And, and so he's just talking to you about some of his health choices. And he says, you know, I've been exercising, but I really wonder, doctor, do you think I should be riding a bicycle or should I be running? And the doctor says, well, you have some knee problems. Maybe you should be riding a bicycle. And he says, well, and what do you think about fruit? I love fruit, been eating a lot of fruit, and, but sometimes I don't lose as much weight. Do you think I should maybe change it out for a salad or something? He's like, yeah, and he gives, he gives some counsel. The doctor gives some counsel. You give counsel to that person. And these are really issues of third importance. They're areas of, of judgment, maybe personal counsel that the doctor might give to him. And if you notice, there were three tears of triage in the health of this patient. There was essential life-saving treatment in the ER. There was the urgent health-sustaining treatment when he went for that uh, follow-up appointment a couple days later. And then third, there was the you know, annual checkup or whatever that one was, where there was the important personal support treatment. And all three of these treatments by a doctor are important 
And it's, and it's important to understand that there's levels of importance. It helps the doctor distinguish what's important when there's, a, when there's an emergency. It helps the patient understand what he needs to focus on at different times as well. And why am I sharing all this? Well, because we are speaking about how we can glorify God in our personal convictions. And just like there are three levels of importance in the treatment of a of patient's physical health, there are three levels of importance in the treatment of your own spiritual health. And we talked about this last week. We went into this, and that is that there is of first importance, essential gospel convictions. And then of second importance, which actually is still important, but there's urgent doctrinal convictions. And of third importance, our personal convictions. And it's very helpful for us to understand the differences and the categories here, especially as we go into 1 Corinthians chapter 8. And of first importance, if you're here for the first time, if you've never been in a church before, and my message to you, our message to you is of first importance is the gospel. It's of of first importance is that you have a conviction that the Bible is true, that Jesus is the Lord and Savior. A conviction really is just a a firmly held belief. It's something that you are convinced of. Every decision you make in your life is based upon something you're convinced of. You have convictions, therefore you make decisions. And if you're a Christian, there was a time where you were convinced of the gospel. Gospel means good news. And if there's good news, that means there's first what? Bad news. And the bad news is that we're sinners. And so you're convinced that you're a sinner. You're convinced you've transgressed God's laws. You deserve God's wrath. But also you believe the good news. And that is that God the Father sent Jesus Christ to live a perfect life in your place. To die on the cross in your place. And to be resurrected, defeating death and sin and hell. And so you believe the gospel And so there was a time, if you're a Christian, that you decided that you're going to follow Christ. God, by his Holy Spirit, came in, did a work of grace in your heart, and you turned from your sin, and you trusted in Jesus Christ. Those are essential gospel truths, and you must have essential gospel convictions about those truths. And really, you can't, this is my diagram I gave to you on the handout, You can't be a believer unless you believe in these essential doctrinal truths. These include the sufficiency of Christ's work, his resurrection, God's moral law that condemns me as a sinner. And so what you notice here in this first tier that our convictions come from are sourced in God's word. We're not just making this stuff up. Someone didn't sit down one day and say, well, I think I'm going to believe this about Jesus and and make this up. No, this comes from God's word. So our convictions about the gospel come from the scriptures. And our consciences are to be calibrated according to the gospel found in the scriptures. And so we hold as Christians firmly to these, these gospel convictions And if you don't hold to these gospel convictions, if you reject these convictions, then the Bible teaches you're not a Christian. And so there are people today who say, well, I worship Jesus, but maybe they worship idols, or maybe they say they follow another religion as well. Well, the Bible teaches that Jesus is the only way. So you either confess that he's the only way or you don't. There's no middle ground there. Or or you might might say, well, I'm a Christian, but you are living in, in moral life, 
and you're not repenting of your sin. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and 10 says, you're deceived. You might say you're a Christian. You might profess to be a Christian. But if you are not living a repentant life, if you're not turning from your sin and confessing that as sin, then you're not a believer. So the Bible is clear. Jesus is the only way we must confess our sin. That's an essential gospel conviction. And the second tier is an important one as well. In our doctor illustration, this was the, the urgent health-sustaining treatment. This was after the, the person's life was saved, but they still need to become a healthy person. And so this is of second importance. It's still important, but the second urgent important of, issue of importance is urgent doctrinal convictions. So the first one is what is necessary for spiritual life. And the second one is necessary to enable you to be a healthy person. These are urgent convictions for your spiritual life. You can be a Christian and you cannot maybe understand all the doctrinal convictions in this, these categories. Maybe you're confused. Maybe you um, even believe wrongly about some of them, but you can still be a Christian. You might not be a healthy Christian. Well, you won't be a healthy Christian if you don't grow in your knowledge in these areas. And so we need to be growing in our understanding of doctrine, that is the teachings of the scriptures, these really urgent doctrinal convictions, and then calibrate our conscience according to God's word in these convictions. This first category must be true, or the first category is true of all Christians. The second category really deals with the local church. It's what we as a local church unify around. And so if you're from you're attending and a member of Lighthouse Bible Church, we're unifying in these urgent doctrinal convictions. And this is really what distinguishes one church from another. This is what distinguishes us from the Presbyterian church or from a charismatic church. So these categories are important. And again, you might not understand all of these doctrines, these doctrinal convictions, but we should grow and we should calibrate our conscience accordingly. Here are some of these doctrinal convictions. I put it in your handout, but I'll say it out loud as well. There's spiritual gifts, philosophy of ministry, eschatology, financial giving, serving the church, worship liturgy, baptismal modes, how to attend a church. Should you attend it online? Should you attend it in person? Should you never attend at all? So all those different things are helpful for you to grow in as a Christian and and get your convictions from God's word. And so we should seek as a church to unify as a church in these doctrinal convictions to grow in that way. Let me just give one example. I think that can be helpful to illustrate this, this area right here. And that is that we believe the Bible teaches that after a person comes to faith in Christ, they should be immersed in water. So we, the Bible calls that baptism. And why do we believe that? Why do we believe that as Lighthouse Bible Church? Well, we believe that because the Bible teaches that. The word baptizo literally means immerse. It means to dip. The, all the examples in the scripture of baptism is of someone dipping, being immersed in water. Baptism pictures Christ's death, his burial, and his resurrection. So after a person trusts in Christ, they testify to those in the church that they're a believer in Jesus by almost literally acting out what Christ has done for us. He, he died, he was buried, and he rose again for us. And Jesus commands us to be baptized. And so we believe that that's an important doctrinal conviction for the church. We calibrate our consciences accordingly. So if you're in here and you're a believer in Jesus, you've trusted in the, the sufficient work of Christ on the cross, 
but you've never testified to the church through baptism, like that's the next step of obedience for you. Come before the church. We're going to stir the waters up here. We can fill it up. And if it gets a hole, we'll get something outside, right? We'll, we're, in some way, we'll put you in the water. We'll put you under and allow you to obey the Lord in that area. And it's an important. It's not necessary for salvation. And in some, what happens in some churches is they, they take that doctrinal conviction. They go, oh, in order to be a believer, it's got to be an essential gospel conviction. So in order to be a believer, you have to be baptized. And in order for you to be saved, you must do this work. Well, that's not true. And so what you've done is you've taken a, an urgent doctrinal conviction and you've moved it up to an essential gospel conviction. And so, so it's not helpful to do that. But it is an important doctrine for our church. It's something important for us to do. All of us need to obey the Lord in this way. And so we hold firm to our gospel convictions we need to grow in our doctrinal convictions. And the last category is really the one we're talking about here this morning from 1 Corinthians chapter 8. And that is personal convictions. They're important. So important personal convictions. But really we're talking about Christian liberty issues. And these are issues that the scripture is not clear about. But there are guiding principles there are guiding biblical principles. You're not, you're not going to find in the Bible a chapter and verse for some of these issues. You'll definitely find some principles. You might find some stories in the scripture that help us know how to live this out. Or maybe it's indirectly addressed. But, but we are to study God's word and come up with personal convictions. But in the end of the day, you're not going to be able to put your finger on it and say, thus says the Lord right here. And so this is where people struggle. You might have a personal conviction that differs from someone else. We should all be unified in our gospel convictions. We should all be unified as a church in our doctrinal convictions. But we in here will have differences of personal conviction. And that's okay. There'll be certain Christian liberty issues where you do something and someone else does something else. And it's different. And you are convinced that what you're doing before the Lord is what God wants you to do. And you should be. And that's where really maturity comes into this. It's where you really need to understand and, and have discernment to understand which, which category does this issue fit into. And so here we're talking about important personal convictions. And again, these, these distinctions, I think, are where churches get off track. Where really a lot of Christians get off track. Because they take Christian liberty issues, really third... Uh, um, third tier issues, and they put them into second, or they put them into the first category. On one extreme, people try to elevate their Christian liberty convictions to first importance. It's like, you can't be a Christian unless you do this. So, so you, you have to dress this way in order to be a Christian, and that's called legalism. What you're basically saying is, God will like you. He'll give you favor if you do this, 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 and this. And and in the end, you're undermining the gospel, and that's a, an extreme we should reject. Or they elevate a, a, uh, another, uh, um, they elevate an issue of doctrinal importance, and they make it, uh, or they elevate, I'm sorry, they elevate a, a, doc, uh, a personal conviction, and they elevate it to a, a doctrinal conviction, and they make it a point of disunity in the church. They say, well, I, I believe this, so therefore the church must believe like me. And it's not a doctrinal conviction. It's, it's a personal Christian liberty issue. 
And so they cause division in a church. It's something like, you know, well, I think all Christians should homeschool their kids. So only those in, in, a, in a church should, should only those who are in, in are, only those who go to this church should homeschool their kids. And so they feel so strong about it, they're willing to split churches over. Or maybe they'll say, I'll only go to a church where the pastor from the pulpit says, the only righteous thing you can do is to homeschool your kids. Well, homeschooling your kids is a Christian liberty issue. Or someone might say, well, I don't think kids that go to homeschool, they're not getting an education. That should not be something we should do. And the point is, is that's, a, that's something where you should look at the scripture, you should come to a conviction, but you shouldn't be, there shouldn't be doctrinal division on it. That's a Christian liberty issue. And so the problem people do have is when they take that personal conviction, they elevate it to a doctrinal conviction. Or the other extreme is people say with Christian liberty issues, they go, well, it doesn't even matter. Who really cares? <laughs> like, who cares if you do this or that? It's like, and they really go down the path of license and, and really think, well, I'm, I'm free. So God doesn't care. I don't care. And that's not true. Because in every one of these categories, whether it be gospel convictions, doctrinal convictions, and even personal convictions, the scripture is very clear. Each one of us will stand before Jesus Christ and we will give an account. Did we make decisions based upon convictions that came from God's word? And so it, it all matters. And so it must matter to us. So this is what 1 Corinthians 8 is talking about. It's talking about important personal convictions, Christian liberty issues. It's not about gospel convictions, not about doctrinal convictions, but here we're talking about personal convictions. And so it's important for us to understand these differences, to know what category your conviction should be in, and then to discern how to live that out in the church. And so what is 1 Corinthians 8 about? Well, Paul instructs you in this passage to glorify God as you establish and apply your Christian liberty convictions. 1 Corinthians 8, Paul instructs you how to glorify God as you establish and apply your Christian liberty convictions. And so last week we started this looking at three truths about Christian convictions to enable you to glorify God. And we're just going to briefly review this. The first conviction was this, or the first truth was this, Christian convictions must be informed by scripture. Look at verse one, 1 Corinthians chapter eight, verse one. We saw this in verse one, but also in verses four through six. Now concerning food offered to idols. So again, this is a, an example of a Christian liberty issue. And remember in Corinth, there were temples everywhere in the city. Thousands of animals every day were being sacrificed in these temples to Zeus and Poseidon and Apollo and Aphrodite and all these different gods, or at least these idols, false gods, which meant that there was a lot of meat available in Corinth. If you went to the market, likely that meat was slaughtered in a temple. The temples even had restaurants that were attached to the temple and and you could go to that restaurant like we do today, just have a restaurant, but that meat came from the temple and it was probably cheaper to eat there. Most homes in Corinth likely had meat on their table that had been sacrificed to an idol. And so what do you do as a Christian? Should you go to that restaurant? Should you buy the meat in that market? Can you go to your neighbor's house who's an unbeliever and eat the meat on his table? That's a good question. 
So the question is really, what does the Bible teach? And let me me be clear, because they were not wondering if they should worship those idols. They were wondering if they could just get the meat, be able to partake in that. So the question is, what does the Bible say? Well, the Bible is not clear about if we should eat meat or not, or should eat, or if we should eat or buy meat that has been offered to an idol. If you look in the Old Testament, if you look in before 1 Corinthians and the New Testament, you're not going to see any clear teaching on this. But the Bible does have clear teaching on idols. The idols are just pieces of stone and they're just pieces of, of wood or whatever they're made out of. They're nothing. That Zeus isn't real. There was no Zeus. There's no Apollo. There's no Poseidon. Like those are all myths. There's only one true God. So we know that. And that's what you see in verse 1. He says, Paul wrote in verse 1, that they argued, we know that all of us possess knowledge. So this was a quote from the Corinthian church. They were saying, we all know these things. The knowledge is referring to the knowledge of the scripture. We all know what the Bible teaches about idols. We know what the Bible teaches about the one true God. There's no such thing as idols. There's there's only one God. In fact, you can see that in verse 4. Therefore... Scripture reads, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know two truths. What are the two truths from the scriptures? An idol has no real existence, and there is no God but one. And those two truths are clear in the scripture. And so some in the church said, well, since an idol is not real, and since there's only one true God, then who cares if that meat was blessed in front of an idol, right? It's just a piece of meat. I can eat that. It's, it's cheap food for us to have. So we can have that meat. And in verses 5 and 6, six Paul supports their knowledge. And actually, he agrees. You're right. There, there are no such thing as other gods. There is only one God. And you, yes, you can eat that meat. And because of that scriptural truth, you can eat the meat offered to idols. Yes, the scripture never says what store you can go to or thou shalt not eat at this market. It doesn't doesn't say that. You're not going to find that in there. But it's it's good for you, Corinthians, to to base your convictions off of God's word. So yes, technically, their liberty, they had liberty. They had the freedom to eat that meat offered to idols. But listen to this. But Paul's saying this. There is more to your decision than what, just what the scripture says. Think about that. There's more to your decision than just what the scripture says. Your decisions cannot be decided by mere knowledge of the scriptures alone. Now that's kind of shocking to us people who are Bible people, right? Well, Pastor Ben, that sounds like you're adding something. No, listen to this. Your decisions cannot be decided By mere knowledge of the scriptures alone, you must consider the effect on your your spiritual life and on the lives of others. You must consider the effect of your decision on your own spiritual life and on the lives of others. And this is where maturity, spiritual maturity comes in. And so really our second truth we're looking at here this morning is this, that Christian convictions informed by scripture but lacking love is prideful. Look at the end of verse one. This knowledge, this knowledge of the scriptures puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, 
he does not yet know as he ought to know. So Paul taught here that knowledge puffs up. He wasn't teaching that knowledge is bad. This is not the verse for you kids that just went back to school. This isn't the verse for you to be like, mom, I don't have to learn anything. Pastor Ben said knowledge puffs up. Now, Paul was teaching here that knowledge alone can be a problem because knowledge alone can lead to pride. You, you should know and grow in your knowledge of God's word. Every day, we should be in the word of God. We have these classes that meet at nine o'clock on Sunday morning. Like, let me encourage every one of you here to come next week. Now, next week, we have a combined class we have the rights coming, our missionaries to Africa. And so that's going to be enjoyable. So come to that one at nine o'clock. And then after that, we start up our classes again. And we have these classes. Come to these classes. Sign up. Be a part of them. Know and, and grow in your knowledge of the Lord. We have our truth trackers coming up. And we do this to help our parents disciple their kids. So sign your kids up. We want them to know God's word. We want them to meditate on truth. We want them to know doctrine so they can have doctrinal convictions. All of us should be faithful to the primary time of discipleship. When is our primary time of discipleship? When is it? It's right now. It's during the preaching of God's word. So there's a lot of God's word in our life, and that's so beneficial. It's so wonderful. But here is the warning. Knowledge alone leads to pride. Knowledge alone leads to pride. Knowledge alone inflates your ego. It puffs up your mind. If your goal for knowledge is just to gain more information, then you're going to be like a balloon. A balloon that keeps being inflated more and more. And the more knowledge you gain, the bigger your ego will be. And then when someone comes up and they interact with you and they, they poke you, you'll pop. And you know what will come out? bunch of hot air, just you. You can fill yourself with the knowledge of God and just be filled with a lot of you. So that's the warning he's giving here. Instead of a balloon, we really should be like builders. He says, love builds up. Think of how they built a house back in ancient times. You had a builder who had knowledge, right? He took clay and straw and he made bricks and he used his knowledge to lay those bricks one at a time to build that house. And he, he put it just in the right place so that the house could be, could be built and be beneficial for whoever was living in that house. We are not to be puffed up balloons. We're to be builders who build other people up. Builders build up other people because... They love those people. Verse one says, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. You might in your Bibles have the word edify, edifies. But it's really the idea of, of building a house, building up a person, edifying a person. It's helping them become who the person God wants them to be. And love asks really this question. Love asks, how can I lay a brick in someone's life so they can be the person God wants them to 
to be? How, how, can I, how can I interact with this person? How can I work in the life of this person so they can become more like Christ? Love is the motivator. It's because first we love God and then we love other people. Like a skilled builder, we should use our knowledge of God's word to build people. And we do it because we love. We love God and we love those people. And so it's not just knowledge of God's word. It's not just love. We don't reject the knowledge of God's word. We say, no, you must know the word. We must grow in the word, but we must apply it in love. And it's a helpful warning, I think, for us because here at Lighthouse, we are Lighthouse Bible Church. We are people of the book. We sing the word. We give to spread the word. We preach the word. We teach the word. Throughout the week, we're hopefully, hopefully having interactions in the word of God. We're people of the book. But church, if we lack love, then we are really just a bunch of people who are full of ourselves. Knowledge alone is self-centered, it's self-exalting, but knowledge of God applied with love builds up. And notice the difference. If it's just knowledge, for knowledge's sake, it's about me. But if it's to know and to love, it's about edifying other people. We need to recognize, I think, in our church, in our modern Christianity, the danger of knowledge alone Christianity. We have churches, we have colleges, we have seminaries that are dedicated to the knowledge of God. They're filled with people who are on a quest to know God, and those are good things. They write papers and publish articles, but the truth is many people who attend those Organizations, those churches, many times many of us reek with pride. We can be so engrossed in the knowledge of the scripture that we think spirituality is gauged by degrees. We can think spirituality is gauged by the amount of knowledge I know about God's word. And friends, that is not the case. I've known well-read church members, seminary professors, very intelligent Bible students who think they are mature because they know a lot, but some of those retain, remain spiritual babes. Because their knowledge wasn't used to increase their love for God. It wasn't used to love the church. It was used to put a degree on the wall. It was used to teach a bunch of people, to write a book. So it's so important for us to come back and remember that we know God for a purpose, so we can serve God's people. I think of it like water. Think of the difference between a cool, clear, flowing stream and a stinky, stagnant pond. You think about a, a cool, flowing stream. You have rain that comes down. Maybe there's ice melt off the mountains, and it comes to that stream, and it, and it flows through, and it's, generally it's clean, it's, it's drinkable, it's it's pure, and, and it flows through to somewhere else, right? It passes it on. I think about that in regard to a spiritually healthy person. A spiritually healthy person has knowledge coming in, 
right? Yeah, they have that knowledge that comes in, but he or she also is a conduit to give out that knowledge with love. They, they have something flowing in, but also the love of God flowing out. But for a stagnant pond, think about that. Water comes in and what happens? It just stays there. It just stinks there. It becomes gross. Bacteria begins to form, really festering in that water are bugs and parasites. It's cloudy. It's discolored. I think that's what happens when we can come to a church like this and we can gain knowledge of God, but it doesn't change our life at all. We can sit and we can learn, but we don't live it out in love. That knowledge can flow in us and stay in us, and we can be people who stink with pride. No wonder there are people that sit in churches and know a lot about God, but their minds are festered with doubt, discouragement, and depravity. Yes, you're filled with God's knowledge, but your heart is breeding pride and self-centeredness. Remember uh, when I was at a church in South, or in church in uh, Wisconsin, and I was talking with a group of men. We were at a men's Bible study, and there was a guy in our group who was really struggling. He had just gotten divorced a couple years later, wasn't really able to see his kids, but he came to faith in Christ. And so his life had changed And we were just at this group, and he was sharing just how discouraged he was. And he was giving a testimony how a couple weeks ago, God just really started changing his life. One of the pastors had recommended to him. He said, said, you know, you really are learning a lot. You're being discipled, but you're not doing anything. You should go do something. At our church, we had a children's program on Wednesday night, and uh, he started getting involved in that. He started coming to the church, and at that time we were building a building, so he started working on different things in the church. He started serving. He started living this love out to the church, to people, and it changed his attitude. And I think really that's what he's saying right here. Yes, we must know God, but we also must live it out in love. And remember, this text is speaking of Christian liberty issues. And isn't it our tendency to, to fight about Christian liberty issues, right? We're convinced this is true, So therefore, we want to convince other people that we are right. But Paul was saying, that is not the most important point. The most important point is not, are you right? It's, are you loving? In regard to this area, in the Christian liberty area, it's not a matter of, are you correct? It's, are you loving? Pastor Ben, that person has a different view than I do on this thing. Do you know what they, view, what they think about vaccinations? Have you heard that person's uh, view on vaccinations, Pastor Ben? Or, or on, on these other areas, these issues that are really important to me, I, I need to convince them that they're wrong. I need to convince them that my view is right. Really? Is there a verse in the Bible that says thou shalt or thou shalt not, according to vaccinations? You're like, well, I have some biblical principles that I, oh, that's exactly right. See, we're talking about third-tier issues here. You should have biblical convictions about it, okay? You should look in God's word and come to a conclusion on it. But you should never be an evangelist for it. You should never divide the church over it. In Christian liberty issues, we never seek to conquer and divide in regard to those issues. In the past number of years, 
past two years, I guess, there's been many churches that have split over masks, vaccines, whatever else is out there. And it's sad. And I think one of the things, as I look back in the last couple years, that I'm most joyful about with our church is that I don't, as far as I know, we didn't have that in our church. We have different people, have different positions, and we were not unifying on everyone do this and everyone do that. We were just like, let's be the church. Like, let's gather and be the church. And, I'm, and I, I just want to say, I commend our church for that, right? Because different people have different positions, but you recognize, and I think that's a sign of spiritual maturity, you recognize that that's a third-tier issue. That's a personal conviction. And yes, you, you have a conviction, you came to a conclusion, but you're not going to divide the church over it. And how sad is it that many churches divided because people decided that was going to be their mission is to make sure everyone had their position. Many churches, unfortunately, had an issue in that area. What about in October, there's this holiday coming up. It's towards the end of October. I need to convince people about my position, Pastor Ben. Well, is that in the Bible? Is there a, a, a time or a verse where it says, thou shalt or thou shalt not? Well, I have biblical principles. Praise God, you should. You should study the scriptures and come up with the principles and, and, and hold to those and practice that. Maybe your principle is, I want to win my neighbors to Christ. And literally the only time of the year when my neighbors come out is that day. So I'm going to go out and talk to those people. Or it might be on the other end, you say, well, I, I cannot do anything in that holiday because when I see what's happening in my soul, my conscience is vexed. Well, you probably should not go out. Maybe go on a vacation somewhere, you know, somewhere that doesn't celebrate that holiday. But the point is, is that it's okay to have two people who have two different conclusions. We can still love each other. That's what the scripture's commanding us to do right here. But they're wrong, right? Or, or they think I'm wrong. I need to prove I'm right. No, you don't. And that's what he's getting at. That's called pride. And that's why we have verse two. Look at verse two. This is a, a verse that should humble each one of us in here. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. In other words, you don't know as much as you actually think you do. You might imagine you know all the answers, but you don't. I like how one translation translated it. Very dynamic, okay? So this is not a literal translation. Anyone who claims to know all the answers doesn't really know that much. I was like, you know what? That's a pretty good way to put that. How often do we act like we have it all figured out? We speak with such boldness in these Christian liberty issues, issues the Bible doesn't directly address. We act like we know it all. I think the older you get, and I'm not as old as some people, but the older I get, the more I realize <clears throat> how many times in my life I've held very strong opinions about things that I do not agree with today. I was thinking back to my college years, and I was thinking, there are some things that I said when I was in college, and I was strong on that if you guys knew about it, I would be very embarrassed. I am so thankful that not everything I thought was put on the internet back then. <laughs> and that's probably a good admonition for you today. Don't put everything on the internet, because at some point in your life, you're going to be embarrassed by what you put up there. And I think that's just, just how it goes. Like, you just realize as you get older that, that I'm... I'm I've been wrong in many ways. In fact, 
I'm probably wrong about some things right now. If it's a gospel conviction or doctrinal conviction, I'm strong on those. Like, I'm convinced. But if it's a Christian liberty issue, it's like, my mind might change on that. So the question isn't if I'm right. How much do you know? The question is, am I loving? Am I loving God? Am I loving other people? Which leads us to our last point. That is, Christian convictions applied with love pleases God. Christian convictions applied with love pleases God. Look at verse 3. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. God knows those who love him. You want to talk about knowledge? Here's what God knows. He knows your heart. And he knows when you are living your faith for yourself. And he knows when you're living your faith to love him. And to love other people. So verse 3 highlights the importance of love for God in our Christian liberty convictions. If anyone loves God, this is the heart. This right here is the heart of a person that pleases God. He loves God. You can be right all day long. But let's be honest, God doesn't want a bunch of robots that correctly compute the Bible He wants a bunch of worshipers that love him and love his people. He wants those who truly live their life in love for God, in love to others. So you can see that. Look down in verse number seven. We see this example here with this church. Verse seven, he says, however, not all possess this knowledge In other words, there are people in the church who, through their background, their experience, they don't really have this knowledge. What knowledge is he talking about? Well, the knowledge that idols are just objects, not real gods. If you listened to last week's sermon, you remember that some in the church had weaker consciences in regard to the meat offered to idols. I mean, their conscience had been conditioned their entire life to view that statue, that little piece of wood or that stone as something that's real, something that's going to hurt them, something that could come after them or something that could protect them. And now they've come to faith in Christ and it's like, that's still in their conscience. In fact, look at that in verse seven. However, not all possess this knowledge. But some, through former association, that's their former life, with former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, in their conscience, being weak is defiled. Remember, we all have some areas of Christian liberty where we all have weak consciences. We actually all have areas where we have stronger consciences. He's not giving a level of spirituality. He's not saying there's weak, unspiritual Christians. There's strong, spiritual Christians. No, he's saying in in regard to your conscience. And and yes, as you mature spiritually, you're going to have a stronger conscience in some areas. But the point is here is that we need to recognize is that some of us are weaker in our conscience in some areas and some people are stronger. Let me give you an example. I read a story about a tribe in Cambodia. And this missionary went over there and gave this tribe the gospel. And, and these, these tribal people were using these drums as a particular type of cultural drum. And they used these drums, you know, in their ceremonies, but also when they worshiped really demons and their idols over there. And so when the church came to faith in Christ, when people came to faith in Christ, the church did not use those drums. And they couldn't. Their consciences were weak in that regard. 
But then a couple years went by and, and the culture began to change and people stopped using those drums. And, and, and not just in demonic worship, but just even in other things like in weddings and things like that. And so some of the people in the church realized we could redeem this for the church. So they took these really cool looking drums and they sound amazing and, and they redeemed them for the church. If you go to Cambodia today and that tribe today, pretty much the only people that play those drums is that church. It's kind of a lost art, but they redeemed it. Now they have a strong conscience in regard to those drums. Uh, I think about for us as Americans, we, we probably, most of us in here, have a very weak conscience in regard to littering. If I were to go out in the street and drop you know, something on the ground, many of you would probably look at me and say, oh, Pastor Ben, he's a litterer. You know, and that way I'm probably a sinner. I read a story about how a missionary was talking about in a certain Asian country, there is an, an area where um, the poor people pick up trash and they get paid for it. And so some of the richer people in town actually drop trash on the ground purposely so a poor person can pick it up. So they're littering. And, and honestly, for them, they have a strong conscience in regard to that. It's not a big deal for them. Because for them, it's like we're helping the poor, right? I mean, why wouldn't you help the poor? Like, of course you're going to drop trash on the ground to help the poor. Does that kind of help you make sense? Like, there's areas where you have a weak conscience. Some of it's going to be cultural. Some of it's going to be maybe some other things. And, uh, and if you were to become a missionary in that area, I would hope your conscience would become stronger so you would be okay with something like that or be able to adapt to that situation. But the point is we all need to recognize there are certain issues where I have a weaker conscience, certain issues where I have a stronger conscience. And, and really what he's talking about here is he's not speaking to those of the weaker conscience. In other words, sometimes people go to this passage and say, I have a weak conscience, therefore you have to do what I say. That's not what he's talking about. He actually is only addressing those with a stronger conscience. And so if you're like, you know what, at our church, Pastor Ben, we have to do this because I have a weak conscience, and if you don't do that, then it's going to cause me to sin. Well, where's your verse for that? Oh, it's in 1 Corinthians 8. That's not talking to you. It's talking to those with a stronger conscience. And so he's instructing the stronger in conscience in a certain area to love the weaker in conscience in a certain area. And it reminds them here in in 1 Corinthians 8, that God is not pleased by just what you eat and what you don't eat. It's not like God's looking at your life and he's like, okay, are you following all these rules? Check, 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 check. Oh, now I'm pleased with you. But God looks at your heart and he wants to make sure that you are loving people by faith. In fact, look at verse 8. You can see that in verse 8. Verse 8, food will not commend us to God. In other words, it's not like you're like, okay, if I eat this, then God likes me. If I don't eat this, God doesn't like me. He's like, food doesn't commend you to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better if we do. And again, he's talking to those with a stronger conscience. And he's saying, you can't earn God's favor by eating or not eating. So what does it matter if you get that meat? Like there's going to be times you need to ask yourself the question, what's the big deal? Like why, why are you going to buy that meat and hurt that brother? Maybe you should consider that before you take that next step and buy or eat that meat in front of someone who's going to have a weak conscience in regard to that area. Eating meat doesn't help you spiritually. Sure is nice though, isn't it? I like a big T-bone steak. That's, that's not in the Bible, but I'm sure they thought that. Verse 9, but take care, be careful that this right, see that word right right there? This is Christian liberty. 
that right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. So, so be careful that your Christian liberty doesn't hurt someone else. So as you're exercising your Christian liberty, just be careful about how you treat other people and, and how you're interacting with those who might have a weaker conscience in that area. Look at verse 10. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? So here's an example. Here's an example. So let me kind of tell it maybe more like a story to help us out here. Let's imagine that you are one of these ones that have a strong conscience. You're okay with eating meat offered to idols. And your family uh, is going to have a reunion at a restaurant in the area. And you're a believer. Your family is not, are not believers. And so, you know, you're going to go to this restaurant. You're going to be there. And, and you, you know the meat they're going to serve is just meat. Who really cares? But you have a cousin who's come to faith in Christ. Your cousin's going to go with you. And you're, you're going to sit at the table there. And your cousin, really, for her whole life, she has feared Zeus. I mean, she's feared that Zeus is going to have a lightning bolt come down and strike her. So every time she has a piece of food, she blesses it in the name of Zeus. And she did that her whole life because she was really afraid that if she didn't do that, she would be hurt by Zeus. And now she's going to go to a restaurant that's serving food that had been offered to Zeus. And now she's thinking, when I eat this, I'm going to, I'm going to be remembering and I'm actually going to be worshiping Zeus. And, and maybe God's going to be striking me with a lightning bolt if I eat Zeus's, you know, you see what I mean? And that's in her conscience. And you're like, come on, you're a Christian now. Zeus isn't real. And she's going, I know that. You're like, just eat the meat. And you get her to eat that meat. She sins in her conscience. And so what he's saying here, he's saying she's sinning against Christ. She's sinning in her heart and you're sinning against her, but you're also sinning against Christ. Look at verse 11. And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed. The brother for whom Christ died, thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it's weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. And so here he's saying, that you can have a right to do something, the freedom to do something, but it can still be sin if you use that to cause your brother or sister in Christ to sin. So in all of our convictions, make sure they're based upon God's word. If they're gospel convictions, hold tight to those convictions. Love should motivate you to go out and tell people the gospel. If it's a doctrinal conviction, grow be disciple, disciple other people, and love should compel us to disciple each other. But if it's a personal Christian liberty conviction, love actually compels us to be willing to surrender our rights for the good of another person. You understand the differences? A gospel conviction, our love says, I got to tell people the gospel. For a doctrinal conviction, our love says, I need to disciple my, my church members, and I need, need to be discipled in doctrine. And for Christian liberty, we say, you know what? I don't want to hurt people. How can I love my brothers and sisters in Christ? I'm over time, but I, I think it'd be helpful just to give a couple examples to end. So let me do that. You're sitting in coffee bucks. You love to go there to study. 
You know, you go there and study. And these are, these are real examples, but there's no, no one in here, okay? Maybe myself, but no one else in here. You go there to study, and you uh, love to sit down and study and talk to people about Jesus and stuff. But it's June, and you walk in there, and you walk into coffee bucks, and there's flags everywhere, and you know what they're celebrating, right? It's gay pride, and you're like, ooh. You look around, and you say, man, there's a lot of people who need Christ in here. I'm going to sit down and use this as a conversation to share the gospel. I mean, these people need good news. And then later, maybe that month, you're discipling a young man. This young man has come out of that lifestyle, and you're discipling him, and you're thinking, oh, we should just sit down for coffee and read through some. But then you're thinking, you know what? If we go into that setting, he might struggle with that. That actually might not be helpful for him. But you're like, I really like my caffeine, though. But you know what, maybe it's best for us to pick up a can of Folgers and do that. Just go to a park somewhere. And the point is, you might have a stronger conscience in that area, and he is a weaker, and you are seeking to love that brother in Christ. Or think about this one. Maybe there's a family that comes to our church, and they're visiting our church, and you're going to know them more, and they're over to your house, and they're over to your house, and and uh, and. They love all things Disney. I mean, like, Disney is the best thing ever for them. They wear Disney shirts. I mean, even on Sunday, they wear a Disney tie, right? And so they love all things Disney. They know every Disney movie there possibly is. And you do not like all things Disney. Like, you're, you're like, I'll never step foot on Disneyland ever again. Okay, and that's, so the, you guys both come to conclusions on this. And, and so you have a, a weaker conscience in regard to that area. They have a stronger conscience in regard to that area. How do you love and unify with a sister or brother who differ in that? Like, what should you do about it? You're sitting in your house, and you're thinking, oh, you have a lot of Disney stuff in your house. And you're thinking, I don't like Disney. What, what should you do in that situation? I would recommend Romans 14, 22. The faith that you have, keep it between yourself and God. Maybe the best thing for you to do is not to share your opinion. Now, if they ask... Yeah, maybe you do share that. But maybe sometimes the best thing to do is to, to keep our opinions to ourselves. And we could go on and on with different, different applications. Let me end with this. This is a prayer that Paul really prayed for the church after he talked in Romans 14 and 15 about these Christian liberty issues. And this is his prayer. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, this is speaking of the church, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may be, you may with one voice, here's what it is, glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for what? The glory of of God. And that's why we're talking about glorifying God in your Christian convictions. That's what matters. Glorifying God by loving other people in this area. Let's pray.